you know, the, the drugs came first or even to the extent there was a day when we, the kit, the, my brothers and I were sitting in a car and my parents went off and then they came back an hour later and it turned out that they had gone into a restaurant to eat and left us in the car. And that is essentially my childhood. It's just like we didn't deserve to eat in a restaurant. Uh, we would have to sit in the car or we would have to go hungry so that they could buy heroin. Welcome to the Salon edition of Uncut Poetry. In this edition, we will feature interviews of poets, readings of my favorite poetry, reviews of poetry books which I have fallen in love with, and pretty much everything related to poetry. Today, we have Katerina Canyon with us. Katerina is an award-winning poet, best-selling author, civil rights activist, and essayist. She grew up in Los Angeles and much of her writing reflects that experience. Her first book of poetry, Changing the Lines, was released in August 2017. This book is a conversation between mother and daughter as they examine what it means to operate within the world as black women. Katerina is a 2019 and 2020 Pushcart Prize nominee. Her stories have been published in the New York Times, the Huffington Post and Forks. Her poetry has been published in Northwest, the Aesthetic Apostle, Waxing and Waning and other publications. From 2000 to 2003, she served as the poet laureate of Sunland to Janga. During that time, she started a poetry festival and ran several poetry readings. Katerina will be releasing her new poetry book, Surviving Home, in December 2021. Surviving Home is a reflection on African-American heritage and upbringing, racism and abuse. Hi, Katerina. Good to have you here in Uncut Poetry. Hi, Sunil. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Where are you just now? I am in Seattle, Washington in the United States, and it is a beautiful day today. In Seattle, the sun comes up very early in the morning at around 5 a.m., and then it sets at about 9.30 p.m., so we're getting a lot of sunshine right now. What do you see outside your window? I have a lot of trees. It's very green, and so I see... A lot of maple trees. That's beautiful. I moved to Seattle about three years ago, and my husband and I were just here for a visit. But the minute that I landed in Seattle, I said, we're not leaving, and we haven't. <laughs> Wonderful. But most of your life has been in Los Angeles, is it? Yes, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I stayed there until about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've traveled to several areas. I've lived in St. Louis, Missouri, Boston. Uh, I spent a little bit of time in Russia, Nepal, Portugal, the UK. So, yeah, it's been a very exciting time. I enjoy my travels because it lets me see another part of the world and 
see how people in other parts of the world live and think and work. So is it work which has taken you around? Yes, it uh, it's been my studies mostly. I have a bachelor of arts in English international studies and creative writing uh-huh. from St. Louis University and I have a master of arts in law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And I wanted to study systemic racism and I also studied children's rights. So a lot of my work and studies have to do with looking at conditions of children and looking at um conditions of different race classes. Is your childhood something which has determined what you do with your career? It definitely has. I grew up uh, very poor and and African American of course. And sure. um my parents struggled with drug addiction pretty much my whole childhood and it was very challenging for me as a child uh being raised in these this family where we dealt with poverty abuse homelessness and so i wanted to ensure a world where children didn't have to live the way i did so i've been doing a lot of work in that area that seems to be quite a childhood how did you survive i i would have to say that poetry had a great deal to do with it i it was an outlet for me because when you have a family like this it is a family that's just draped in secrets and everything that happens stays inside the house and i felt like i was just burdened with all of these things that were happening to me and having a place to write them down gave them less power and i would also say that my brothers also had a lot to do with getting through it because we were getting through it together so when did you start writing poetry ooh uh i started writing poetry when i was about 8 years old mm-hmm. uh it began with I had a journal and I would write things in the journal about what was happening in our home but my father found the journal and he was very upset that I was writing these things down and so I started changing my style of writing such that everything was hidden in metaphor and right. and then i always had a love of poetry uh early on i i gravitated toward things like nur- nursery rhymes mm-hmm. and poetry children's poetry and then i went from there to edgar allan poe and from there to william blake to shakespeare and then i started to appreciate african american poets like nikki giovanni Audrey Lord and and then you know and then to today where I write my own poetry and I have a community of poets that I rely on and admire wow what does poetry mean to you today poetry is my lifeline and identity uh 
I spend every day, if I'm reading poetry, writing poetry, talking about poetry, it is who I am. I don't know who I would be without it. You know, Katarina, the raw viscerality of your work jumps out. But your book is also like a survivor's manual. Can you, can you talk about that? Well, this is one of the honest books of poetry I've ever written. And it came from a place of pain. I did not write this book saying to myself, I'm going to write this book and publish it. I was in a very dark place. I was very depressed. I hadn't written in a while. I felt like I had a writer's block and I became suicidal. And I ended up getting admitted to the hospital in New York City. And when I have lupus, which is an autoimmune disease uh, that's very common among Black women in the United States. And the doctors at the time told me that I was going through a psychosis brought on by the medication I was on for lupus. And so they hospitalized me to watch my lupus and make sure that my head got straight. And when I was in the hospital, the doctor told me to try to write poetry again. And so this book, at least 80% of the poems in this book were written in the hospital. And it was, for me, a journal of the things that were causing me pain, the hopelessness I was feeling at the time. And so I wrote this just to release the pain. This wasn't a book that I really put a lot of thought into. This was just me unfiltered. It truly is a survivor's manual. Yes, it definitely is. Wow. Katarina, a poem from you. Okay, this poem is called Phoenix. And this is one of the few that wasn't written in the hospital in New York. However, Mm -hmm. it was written in the hospital. Uh, I was sick and I wrote this uh, poem because I have a tendency to overwork myself. And because of that, I say that my spirit animal is the phoenix. And so that's what this is about. My spirit animal is the phoenix. She sits as a chick on the windowsill of my hospital room and grows impatient, having burned to ash three days ago. She toddles along the cement against the dark, cloudy Seattle skyline, pecks at dead bugs and waits for the sunrise. Her feathers, black tufts of mists, sway with the wind. When she can, she will leap from the sill and fly and will likely burn to ash again. She cannot stop herself from flying straight towards the sun. So this poem is just representative of the type of person I am. I will completely go for broke. I always always say go big or go home. And I will put everything I am out there. And then until 
I just completely fall apart and then I stop and recover and then I go out there and do it again. At some point, is self-destruction also what builds into the psyche with abuse being piled on day in, day out? I mean, if you go back to your childhood and think about what you are today, is it something which got built into the DNA of what you are today? Yes, I am. I feel very much like a sacrificial lamb because what my parents wanted were secondary to what I wanted or needed. It was always, you know, the the drugs came first or mm-hmm. even to the extent there was a day when we the kid the my brothers and I were sitting in a car and my parents went off and then they came back an hour later and it turned out that they had gone into a restaurant to eat and left us in the car and that is essentially my childhood it's just like we didn't deserve to eat in a restaurant uh we would have to sit in the car or we would have to go hungry so that they could buy heroin and mm. and so there is this sense for me to think that i really need to sacrifice myself for a greater good you know i sacrifice myself for children my children other children and that i am just one person and I'm, I mean nothing compared to the whole. Have you told your daughter stories of your, of your, of your past? The abuse, the drugs, the beatings. How does she take it? Uh, my older daughter, I did tell her some of the stories. And actually, my book, Changing the Lines, has poetry that I wrote and with artwork by my daughter. And that came about because I sent her my book and she said, Mom, I feel like this has spoken to me so much that I have to put artwork in this book. So she had a, a complete emotional conversation with the poems in Changing the Lines. And, and what came out of it was something beautiful because I am such a dark person and my daughter Asia is filled with so much light. I think that she helps bring light to my darkness. Wow. Such a lovely name, Asia. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's Asia Aryan, uh, and I pulled it from like um, Orion and there's a brightness to her name as well. Sure. Another poem maybe, Katerina? Oh, sure. This one is called Involuntary Endurance. Uh, it is the first poem in my book, Surviving Home. Mm-hmm. My story is not one revealed with chapter and verse. It is expressed in blood and bone. It is fingernails thrust into back muscles. It is razor blades pressed against flesh. It is told by how the shark swims through the ocean below a school of tuna 
and it is not the shark's story. It is the school of tuna searching along the vast, dark, but sunlight-speckled ocean while knowing they have everywhere and nowhere in the world to flee. It is the brown bear pulling honey from the honeycomb in order to teach her cubs to survive on their own. It is not the mother bear's story. It belongs to the cubs who wander the forest without her after she sacrificed her life to a boar grizzly to protect them. It is told through hot cylinders of pain that sear experience into the skin. It is told in front of the shark bayonet that sprays blood red existence against the multicolored palette of the universe. It may sit silent and still on these black and white pages, but it exists in every tremble of my leathered hand, and it is smeared into every tear-stained scream that flows through my quavering pen. Wow. It's incredible. Incredible. Thank you. So this poem, it came to me later after I had written most of the poems and and I had mostly come to terms with a lot of the things that had happened to me and it it occurs to me that you know my abuse was a generational one that was learned from my parents and learned they learned it from their parents and then it's this slave colonial sort of mentality where you have you go back to even to England where people were flayed mm -hmm. and or and then you get on the slaves plantation and slaves are beaten and whipped and then that's trans that goes down to the families and i've heard that you know in africa this was not something that happened to children. This is something that was learned through the history, European history. Mm. So I reach back to that, you know, this fingernails thrust in the black um, back muscles. And my father is the shark that swims through the ocean. And my brothers and I are the school of tuna. And my mother's the brown bear that sacrifices herself. And so this is just my life on introducing my life in this first page and getting the reader ready for what they're going to encounter in the book. You said this is generational. How did you ensure that it did not pass from you downwards? When I was 19, I had, you know, 19 was when I had my son and i wanted very much not to be like my parents and so i don't drink i don't smoke i've never touched a drug and i read all of these books i've always been a book person i even when we were homeless i spent all day in the library and then then i would go back to wherever my parents were at the time. And so I read so many books on parenting and how to raise your kids. And I pretty much raised my son off of books to make sure that 
I didn't hurt him. And, and I was, when I had my son, I was very religious and, and there was this, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child Mm -hmm. thought. And I maybe spanked him one or two times before I said, I can't do this. I feel like I'm teaching him how to be violent. And so I stopped, I stopped spanking him and Mm. he had a lot of timeouts and even, even timeouts I felt were too restrictive. So I learned how to talk to him Mm. and it is a very long and difficult way to discipline a child (laughs) to (laughs) sit and talk because they get very stubborn. And so, and they, argue very well when you when you talk with them and getting them to understand and agree is a very very long process yes yes in one of your poems at 13 i found a bra you say i'm told every woman pays her debt with pain do you think that's a universal phenomena across women have to carry with them regardless of color or creed i yes i definitely believe it's something that it it just spans colors and generations that women have to pay with pain even you you think of birth and um sexism and discrimination and I think that every woman somewhere along the f- the way feels the bite of discrimination. Mm-hmm. You, your work as a civil rights activist is extensive and I see your focus recently on police brutality and randomness. Right. Um, how, do you, how do you intend it to bring about results? Is there a cohesive mass which would make decision makers sit up and say oh we have to do something now or is there a plan or is it more subliminal that you have to put it out in the universe and something will change how does one go about being an activist uh i think it's a combination of everything you've mentioned Uh, Right now, I'm very interested in the passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act Mm -hmm. uh, here in the United States. And I think that if the Senate passes that, it will go a long way toward making sure that police are held accountable when someone dies at their hands. And I and I don't intend this to be something that is anti-police. I think that this benefits the police um, and law enforcement because when people understand that if they're mistreated, that there will be some accountability, there mm-hmm. will there's there will be a growing level of trust such that police don't have to worry about their personal safety as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... I believe that laws that help protect the people will also help protect law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that this does change a law, but I also think that working 
with um, awareness helps people become more cognizant of what is going on with police. You know, when three people a day in the United States are dying at the hands of police and -hmm. there's no accountability, we're -hmm. essentially saying it's okay for the police to get away with murder. Right. And invariably, I think it's the black person who's dying more than the white person. That That is correct. There, the I can't remember the numbers right now, but there is a higher percentage when you look at the percentage of African-Americans, which we're somewhere around 10%, but uh, the number of African-Americans who are being stopped by the police or um, facing police brutality, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30%. So there's definitely uh, an, an imbalance there. Katerina, in one of your extremely moving poems, Authority Questions, you mull what life would have been if you were white with blue eyes and living in a ranch with 500 heads of cattle. What is the experience of an African-American when she sees a white woman who can get away with so much and discovers discrimination even whilst growing as a child? Is it jealousy? Is it resentment? There is uh, definitely a certain level of resentment that I battle every day. And I actually write about it in an essay that I wrote about four years ago that you can find online called Mm -hmm. Coming to Terms with White Women, where I explain the experiences that I had in my childhood and my early adulthood that formed this bias that I had and how I endeavor to work on not having this this bias how I work to to say that you know not all white women are ignorant of the plight of black women because after Donald Trump was elected mm-hmm. I felt like um because such a high percentage of white women voted for Donald Trump I felt like black women were abandoned to vote I often felt that even though there are black women and white women that we were united as women who worked toward the betterment of all women. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have that um, the election of Donald Trump caused me to question that, that we weren't joined together in our thoughts and our beliefs and what we thought would be best for the country. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who is openly misogynistic I couldn't see how people could, or women at least, could vote for someone like that. Mm. So that caused me to think about different things that happen in my life, like uh, girls commenting on my hair, or just the aspect of growing up with 
white women who just seem to have this level of privilege mm-hmm. that black women didn't have this fragility that mm. they that are seen in white women that black women don't have or you know or how if a white woman goes missing there's this um you don't see it as much now as you did back in the 80s and 90s but there's mm-hmm. this nationwide alert when white women go missing but black women go missing at a high degree every day mm-hmm. and no one really talks about it and a lot of and especially in a place like LA something like um 80% of black women who go missing go missing into um into sexual trafficking and this is an epidemic that no one talks about right another poem maybe katarina sure um this one is called yet another attempt at self immolation mhm have you decided to move backward or forward today you ask without encouraging consonants a young disinterested mouse appears approximately 2 seconds later and dawdles along the new york times resting at my feet we make eye contact and it continues across the dark wood floor to the kitchen island and climbs up the side like an ebony spider you did not notice the direction of my eyes or the cake wrapper on the counter crinkle as the mouse nibbles through what is it with you you ask why can't you just be happy why can't you just suck it up the least attentive people find happiness like the first potato chip which was made by mistake can you imagine what it felt like to taste the first potato chip every time i open a bag of lays or pringles i think you're a mistake truly a denizen on my thighs the abyss is not at one with the conscience it always avoids corruption none of these trivialities separate the cake what are you doing you ask as i pick up the knife slicing the cake i respond wow so this is actually one i wrote one of my first days at the hospital my husband was upset with me because of how depressed i was being he had never seen me in such a dark way and he said why can't you just be happy just you know why can't you just suck it up and mm. pull yourself together and get up and get going and i did i actually saw a mouse cuz in in our new york apartment run across the floor and go up the side and and go into a package and i thought of i just felt completely encased in this small apartment and with this mouse that it was just this one mouse that we just couldn't seem to catch <laughs> up with it was living it had like this sliding sliding door and it would live inside the the crevice of the sliding door so it would always run back into the sliding door and the only way you could get at this mouse would be to like bang a hole into the door which we weren't going to do and so this mouse would just come out and do do whatever it wanted to do and then go back into this into the sliding door hole <laughs> <laughs> and so he would 
he had gotten to the point that the mouse just meant nothing to him, but the mouse just bothered me so much. And the slicing the cake was just the concept of me handing him just this slice of cake with the mouse in it saying, okay, here, take this one thing that's bothering me and look at it. So that's, yeah, that's where that poem comes from. It's wonderful. And that line, the least attentive people find happiness. That line is a poem by itself, I think. Yeah. And yeah, and I believe that. I believe that uh, a lot of people see things that are wrong, but they decide to not pay attention to it and just live life in their bubble. It's so true. And I have a hard time doing that. Uh, one of the things that had me torn apart and depressed at the time was thinking about the children in the world and at the time Central America. Um, these girls who were living in residential care had set a fire in their in their residential care facility because they were locked in by the men running the place and they were protesting because they were being raped and abused and they set fire to the place and a good majority of them died in that fire. And it broke my heart because Trump had canceled amnesty for um, girls trying to leave Central America. And I was just working in children's rights. And I had this feeling of it's all just so hopeless. And people disconnect themselves from things like that. And, and it's hard for me to do do that. I, I've had to learn to disconnect myself and say, I can't fix everything in the world and and that's okay as long as I do the best I can by the at the end of the day. True, true. How effective or powerful is poetry or for that matter any art form in in bringing about change? I I believe it is tremendously effective. I just taught a workshop yesterday on discovering your warrior poet and at the time I showed a picture of a a writing pen and I said this is the single most powerful tool in the world you know this has toppled governments you know people die because of this governments will arrest poets because they know the power that they have Mm. you know they will arrest them. They will kill them because they know that a poet can change the way people think, that a poet can change the world. So they hold a tremendous fear mm. in the words that we write. Which is so true. Which is so true. You look at Myanmar, where I think something in the neighborhood of 30 poets are, have, are in prison right now, and better than half a dozen have been executed in Gaza, there are poets writing under shell fire. In Russia, you have um, Dmitry Zukov, I believe, who was poisoned because of what he said about Vladimir Putin. Hmm. And so poets change the world. Poets change the world, yes. Katrina, can you talk about how you use craft line breaks, internal sound, metaphors, etc., to support the content in your poems? Well, with a lot of poems, I will use repetitive phrases in order to create an impact 
or to um, to illustrate the the unending discrimination that people face. Or I often use sounds like oh or to illustrate pain because mm. I want my poems to sound like moans. Mm. So often I will use oh sounds or or like I to kind of make people think of cry. Mm-hmm. And metaphors are something that I rely heavily on. Mm. Every time I open a bag of laser Pringles, I think you're a mistake. Mm. I'm not talking about the bag of Pringles. Mm. I'm talking about myself. Mm. And so I I put things in my poems where it looks like I'm talking about something else, but in general, it's an aspect of my life. And it's often I will use animals to to um, demonstrate that. Like um, there's a poem in my book where I'm talking about a rattlesnake and a, a tortoise. And it is definitely a poem about the sexual abuse that I experienced as a child. And I don't know how many people see that in the first read. And I have a hard time reading that poem out loud and talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so I often won't read that poem because I know what it means. And I don't know if it's something that comes off clearly on the page. And a part of me hopes that it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I understand. Who are your favorite poets? Ooh, uh, early in my childhood, I would have said, without question, up until about 20 years ago, Edgar Allan Poe. I started reading Edgar Allan Poe when I was six, and I carried him completely through until my 20s. Um, but as I started to experience more things in life, and such as motherhood and um, systemic discrimination, I started embracing African-American women poets like Audre Lorde, Nikki Giovanni. And at this point, I would have to say that my favorite poet is Audre Lorde. And then I often take a shine to poets that I've actually met and know and have worked with and read with, like Sharon Smith-Knight, who's an African-American poet that did a lot of readings in Los Angeles, or Eileen Carroll, who is an African-American female poet, who also is from Los Angeles. And I can't, I would be remiss if I did not mention James Everett Jones, who is a poet that I love dearly. He, um, I have worked side by side with him, and he just has the most amazing work that I have ever heard or read in my life. Mm. Are there poems which you feel are essential readings? I would have to say a poem that comes to mind, straight to mind, is um, a poem by James Everett Jones called Inkwell. Mm -hmm. And I would pull it up and read it to you now if I had it on me. It Mm. would take a little bit of searching on my laptop to show it to you. And he definitely wouldn't mind if I read it. Um, That just speaks to the African-American existence 
Um, let's see what other one comes to mind. Uh, Sharon Smith Knight has a blue girl in a red world. Mm-hmm. That is a beautiful poem. Uh, and then there's a book that's out right now. That's I want to say it's called the essential African-American poetry anthology that has a lot of amazing poets in it. Wow. Fabulous. This has been an incredible conversation. I must say, Katerina, thank you so much. Any last words? Well, I would like to thank you for taking the time to talk with me about my work and my book and African-American writing and children's rights. I've really appreciated it. And I would like to tell everybody that your book Surviving Home is out in December sometime. It might come out sooner than that. Uh, wonderful. It would probably be best if people visited my site at poeticcat.com, which is spelled P-O-E-T-I-C-K-A-T, and they can pre-order it or sign up for my mailing list to so that they can get the announcement of when it's coming out. Fabulous. I'll put this out in the show notes so people can access it without any problems. Thank you so much, Katerina. It's been such a pleasure. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for your candor, for your honesty, and for the incredible integrity of your poems. I completely loved the book when I read it. I'm looking forward for it to come out. Well, thank you. And... You have a beautiful day. Thank you so much. You take care. Bye then. Bye. This is Sunil Bhandari and you were listening to Katerina Canyon on the Salon edition of Uncut Poetry. Pre-book Katerina's book in the links given in the show notes. Did you enjoy this episode of Uncut Poetry? I would do the Salon version once a month and feature interviews of poets, readings of my favorite poetry, reviews of poetry books which I have fallen in love with and pretty much everything related to poetry. If you would like me to do this more often, do let me know. Write to me at uncutpoetrynow at gmail.com Follow Uncut Poetry on Spotify, iTunes, Ghana, GeoSavan, Pocket Casts and everywhere you hear your podcasts. See you soon.